I want to give a shout out to Amy Kimball. She's out of town this weekend, but she did a tremendous amount of research to help me with this two-part mini-series. I think it's going to be a two-parter. We'll see. There could be a third week in there. I'm not sure. Um, I, I want to make sure that we cover this, this ground tonight, and, uh, and then what we don't get to, we'll, we'll, we'll push the next week. It might be that this word is unfamiliar to you, apolitikos. If you start with the word apple, you can get it out. That's, that's how I help my, my, my mouth move in the right way. Apple, apple, apolitikos. It is the Greek word for menacing. And Isaiah 50 verse 2 reads this way, Why was there no man when I came? This is Isaiah prophesying on behalf of God to Israel. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. This is what it says in the New American Standard. But when they were translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, they couldn't find the word they really wanted that really encompassed this idea of the angry side, the menacing side of who God is. So they reached for the root word of apolitikos. Here is God describing a side of himself that is menacing. Behold, I dry up the seas with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. This is a side of God that is real, and it is a side of God that hopefully we will never have to encounter the questions that have inspired this two-week, three-week mini-series that we're in, for me personally, is has Jesus been misrepresented to us as a king who is only ever meek and gentle? Are there times when people are demonstrating a side, this is where I'm hoping to get to next week, are there times when people are demonstrating a side of the character of Christ that is biblical, yet the Jesus in them is unrecognizable to us because we cannot fathom that that's a part of who he is. Has the Bible been misused to condition us to be afraid of fear? I got Cortez going already. This is going to be good. Have we failed the world? Listen to this. This is going to make some of you nervous. Have we failed the world by telling them God always loves everyone? This is heavy stuff that we're going to be digging into. Tonight, my goal, we're going to at least get through the fear of the Lord. I may or may not get to the lion and the lamb paradox. We shall see. But we're definitely going to at least do the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to shift to working off of the screen because I have a graphic that I've been building that I want to teach you tonight that I think is going to help us. And so this idea of the fear of the Lord, I think, is grossly misunderstood, and I want to start teaching it by this very simple line. This is what I'm calling the well-being line. This is God's desire for your life, because God always has your best interest at heart. I'm calling it the well-being line because this is the line that, that God wants you to live on. It's the line that Jesus died for you to have. It's your well-being line, because he always has your best interest at heart. It doesn't mean that this life is going to be without suffering. It doesn't mean that it's going to be without sorrow. It doesn't mean that it's going to be without pain or consequence. But even in the midst of that, God always has my best interest at heart. It's Romans 8, 28. 
For those who love God and are called according to his word, we forget that Romans 8.28 is conditional. So much of what we're teaching and preaching tonight is for the person who's made a vow of devotion to Christ. It's for people that are in the family. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, which means that you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, all things work together for the good. You with me? Because God always has your best interest at heart. It's your well-being line. Give me the next slide. Fear is the human emotion we feel when our well-being is at risk. You might say, I'm afraid that I might lose my job. That's a healthy fear. It means that something inside of you feels like your well-being is at risk financially for you to be able to provide for yourself and your family. You might be in a season where you might say, I'm afraid for my marriage. It's a healthy fear. It's a healthy fear. Now, I get it. I know some of you, right, all, all my theologians, you're, you're going right to 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. I believe that. See, Paul's talking about we should not be characterized by fear, but he's not saying we should never feel fear. Because fear is a human emotion that God has given to us that is a warning light that something is in trouble. Whether out here that could affect us or more often than not, which we're going to be talking about through this little mini-series, something in here is off that can affect us. Fear is something that we must feel. If you've raised a child that doesn't have fear, then you are afraid for them. Because you understand. Children need a grid for fear. A healthy fear. When their well-being is at risk. Fear is the human emotion we feel which helps us to understand, I believe, you've got to start with an understanding of well-being and God always having your best interest at heart. You need to understand what the human emotion that is healthy, that fear means, before we can dig into this. Proverbs 9.10 says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Why is that? Why is that? It is because God always has your best interest at heart, and when you begin to wander away from well-being, there should be a fear that begins to stir up inside of you because you're getting off of God's plan for your life. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And that's why it's the foundation of wisdom because wisdom always chooses well-being because well-being is always birthed out of the heart of a perfect God for a perfect plan for our lives. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. You see here? There is a reason why in Proverbs there is a correlation between judgment and decision and choosing and well-being and the fear of the Lord. Let's look at the next slide. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. Oh, we're going to get to that because society should be afraid at times of God. But the fear of the Lord is not being afraid. It's a different kind of fear. It's not being afraid of God, but rather the fear of my well-being put at risk because I have chosen a path, an attitude, a lifestyle, a response, and we know that list could keep going, that is contrary to what God demands for me. His boundaries are for my good because his well-being is always central to his plan for my life. And when I wander away from that, something should happen inside of me. Let's look at the next slide. This is how we live right here. Prone. When you read in the Bible where it says prone to wonder, this is the picture that God had in mind, right? Dipping and diving. This is what we do. Do's and don'ts. The do's are the good that we should do, what we call here pathways in many respects, prayer, worship, service, fasting, giving, rest. These are all the do's. When you don't do the do that you should, it is sin. 
And when I dive into the don'ts that I shouldn't do, that's sin. Sin can swing on either way of the well-being line, whether it's forgoing the do's or doing the don'ts. Do's and don'ts prone to wander the path of the sheep. But we're not really sheep herders nowadays. But what we are are parents of teen drivers. Let's look at the next slide. So I'm calling this the teen driver model. I know. How many, how many teenagers are in here learning how to drive right now? Have your learner's permit? Don't, come on, I know some of you. I know some of you are out there, right? How, how many of you have had your driver's license for less than two years? Anybody? Yeah? I know. Hey, I know you. Yeah. So when you're teaching, this is our third one that we've taught how to drive. She now drives by herself. Come on, praise the Lord. Right? You, Vanessa's like, no. Is that you're okay with some weaving as long as you stay in your lane. This is part. Pay attention. If you've got kids that you've got to learn, listen to me. If you grab the wheel too soon and too often, you rob your child of the learning that has to take place for muscle memory for them to figure out how to keep a car moving on a straight line. It looks easy, but it's hard if you've never driven before. And a good teacher knows that there's some weaving as long as you stay within the lane. This is what I'm calling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, because I think this is the way the Holy Spirit does it for us. You're following too close. Put your turn signal on. Do you see that person crossing the road? There is a gentle, subtle nudge from the Holy Spirit when we're drifting to not doing something we should or we're drifting towards something that we shouldn't. The Bible calls it conviction. And when we enter into the conviction zone, the Holy Spirit is there to nudge and prod and to help us get back on track and driving in a straight line because he always has our well-being at heart. Let's look at the next line. I'm just throwing this in because you've heard me say this for more than 10 years, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time. Spiritual maturity, a mark, a hallmark of spiritual maturity is that your sinfulness becomes less and less in the realm of the don'ts. It begins to occupy the do's. See, we're going to be sinners for the rest of our lives. But I want my sin, the longer that I live, the, the, the more mature I become in my journey as a devoted follower of Christ, I want my sin to be marked by things like I didn't read my Bible today when I should have. I didn't give the way that he wanted me to. You, you tracking with me? I didn't pursue a relationship or share my faith when I was supposed to. My, my life should be less and less about the don'ts and more and more about the do's. It doesn't mean that you're never gonna dip below the don'ts because we're all imperfect and there's gonna be times when we dip down there, but it should not characterize us. And the reason why you dip down there should change over time. Like for example, if you get frustrated with the way that your wife is driving and you're irritable and you become a jerk when you're at a volleyball game in Chesapeake just last night. Does this sound like a really specific example? 
And then after you have dinner or in the walking to the car, you have to say to your wife, I'm so sorry, I was impatient and a jerk. I don't know why I get that way sometimes, right? That's my yesterday. For some of you, that was your on your way here. Apologize on the way home. Come on. We're not saying there's never going to be don'ts, but I'll tell you this. There are some don'ts from my past that will never be a part of my don'ts from my future. There should be some don'ts that we break free from. There should be some don'ts that we, we just, we run from them, that they will never, ever again be a part of our story. And, and if it is egregious things that we've abandoned, and, and now we're in this phase in our journey where some of our don'ts are more about attitude and character, can I just say those things should not characterize you? They should still be the exception and not the norm. We're calling that the mercy line because that's within the lane that God just says, I know that you're human, I know that you're imperfect, and I've given you the Holy Spirit to kind of guide you along the way. Just stay in your lane. Because at the center of that lane is the well-being line, which is God's perfect plan for your life. Because he always has your best interest at heart. There's only one person who's ever traveled on that line perfectly, and we know who he is, and his name is Jesus, which is why when we get too far outside, which we will get to in a minute, he's the only one that can bring us back. Let's look at the next slide. Now let's talk about the fear of the Lord. You see, when you wander out so far, when you get into the other lane, if, if you are teaching your child to drive, you reach for the brake that does not exist. Huh? Yeah. But the other thing that you do is you grab the wheel. With all of my children who were learning how to drive, there were times where I had to grab the wheel to avoid an accident, to correct our course, to maybe say in an elevated voice, Stop! This is the fear of the Lord zone. Because sometimes the gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit, you become desensitized to it because you spend too much time ignoring it. And your ear becomes tone deaf to him. Something inside of you that is a healthy, righteous, holy fear should begin to well up inside of your heart. See, if... if I, tell, I don't tell people read the Bible every day because I think that's setting them up for failure. I say read the Bible most days because I think if you get to the end of the year and you read the Bible more than you didn't, God says, I'm giving you a big thumbs up. But if you get to the end of the year and you read your Bible a lot less than you should, then there should be a conviction. If you get to the end of the year and you cannot remember the last time you read your Bible, there should be a fear that wells up inside of your heart there should be a fear that wells up inside of your heart because your well-being spiritually is at risk. And I believe that because we have taught people that fear is never a part of God, we've taken a part of the teaching of the Bible and made that all of the Bible, and now people have become unfamiliar and have even suppressed the very thing that God put in them to help them turn around. 
See, I believe that if you wander from the do's too far or dip down into the don'ts more than you should, there should be a healthy fear that begins to rise up inside of your heart because your well-being is at risk. Let's look at the next slide. I'm going to read it again. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. We're going to get to that but rather the fear of my well-being put at risk because I've chosen a path, an attitude of life, a lifestyle of response, et cetera, that is contrary to what God demands. Let's look at the next one. The wrath of God zone. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not cause the wrath of God to disappear. He just made a way for us to be rescued from it. If you believe that when Jesus died on the cross that the wrath of God is gone, then you're dipping your toe, I would say, in the heretical teaching of universalism. Christianity, there is an exclusivity to it that can make us uncomfortable, but that's the way that God designed it. See, when we cross the enmity line, in fact, what I would say to you, we're born on the other side of the enmity line. Let me introduce you to the gospel. You cannot earn your way down to the well-being line. You cannot work there. You cannot deserve his favor. It is grace and it is a free gift that Jesus gives to us because he died on the cross for us. He did not make the wrath of God disappear. He made a way for us to find our way out of it so we could begin a journey to the line of well-being. But you better believe you can choose to go back there. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, all my eternal security Baptist people that's out there. You don't have to find a new church. I'm not making you nervous. I'm not changing what I believe. I don't think that you can, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I don't think that you can sin your way out of heaven. Now, some of you don't agree with that either, and that's okay. Our church is big enough for those competing points of view. But I do believe this, even for myself, once you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I believe that you can journey back into the wrath of God's own. You can get so far outside of God's will for your life that he understands that what you need is some of his wrath to turn you around. And I believe that he does that because he loves us. And that's where the Bible uses phrases like God chastens those that he loves. I don't know about you, but if I venture across the enmity line, I want God to do whatever it takes for me, for my children, for my family, for my church, for my city, for my nation and my world, for him to do whatever it takes to get our attention, to know that there's nothing waiting for us out there but death. Give me the next slide. Once I cross the line of enmity, I begin to listen to me, people, I begin to write a story for my life that competes with the story that God has written for me. And I begin to work against the story that God has written for the whole world because my story is a part of the story. I'll never forget being at the Elam conference years ago with Pastor Justin, and we were there. Elam is the network that we're a part of, and we were trying to figure out if we were going to join that network. And a gentleman by the name of Bob Sorge got up and began to teach. I had never heard him before, and Juice and I, we could not write down fast enough. I remember him 
explaining and helping us to understand, which had always been a mystery to me, and people like myself fumbling around trying to get an explanation, but then someone finally teaches the text that's been elusive to you, and all of a sudden it makes perfect sense that, and you've heard me talk about it before, it was Moses when, when, when God said, I want you to strike the rock, and he strikes it, and water comes out and replenishes a dying nation who's in the exodus, and then you travel down years later, and they are thirsty again, and God says, speak to the rock, but he strikes it instead of speaking to it. And God says, because of that, you will not enter into the promised land. It seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems as though God punished beyond what was reasonable. Bob Sorge said this. He said, when you mess with the prophetic story that God is writing that will reveal Jesus to the world, you have stepped into a realm of egregious sin that is difficult for us to comprehend and understand. And when Moses struck the rock, it struck the rock, it was a prophetic picture of Jesus dying and living water would flow from him. But Jesus does not have to die over and over again. And so once he died once, every person can come to that rock for the rest of their life and make a confession of faith and they speak it, come on and the water flows. And so when you and I are living this life under this doctrine of grace that covers everything without consequence, what I would say to you is be careful because you too have a story that God is trying to write. And your story is part of the story that is supposed to reveal Christ to the world. And when you begin to write a story that is different from the story that he has for you, you begin, I believe, to put your toes on the line of enmity, and I would say let wrath come so that our story can get written according to God's perfect plan because I want the history that I'm making to be the story that God is writing. And that's my dream for myself, for my family, for this church, for this city, and my world. I find myself praying that prayer all the time. God, help me today to make the history that is in keeping with the story that you are writing. And whenever I get so far off the line of well-being, when I blow past conviction, when I give up on the fear of the Lord because my heart has become numb, then I want a God who loves me enough to bring the wrath that I need to turn me around. Next slide. We're going to make it. The lion and the lamb. The lion and the lamb. It's a paradox because it's hard for us to reconcile that Jesus is both of these. And my caution to you is he is not one more than the other. He is not the lion who sometimes becomes the lamb, and he is not the lamb who sometimes become the lion. He is always a lion, and he is always a lamb. It is part of the divinity and the nature of God and the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that in our humanity we will never comprehend how he can be all of these things simultaneously. But he is both the lion and the lamb. Psalm 103, verse 8, it's one of the very first verses I memorized when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in the December of 1990. In that first year in 1991, I read through the Bible for the first time in, in my life. I used a, a Bible called the book. I don't know if you remember that. It, it was a, it's a very loose translation, but it helped me find a rhythm 
for reading God's Word, and I'll, I'll never forget coming to this phrase that, that's all throughout the Old Testament. God is a, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love and truth. That's a great verse to learn if you've never learned a verse. He's a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love and truth. But you know what word is in there? Is anger. It does not say he's without it. It just says he's slow to get there. But if you need it, he will bring it. I found some verses that I've never studied before doing this series, and they have given me pause. Psalm 5, verse 5. Therefore the proud may not stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. It does not say that he hates the evil that they do. It says that he hates those who do the evil. Sobering, isn't it? In fact, when I did a word search for hate in my Bible app that I use, you know where it appears more often than anywhere else? In the book of Psalms. What? All over the place. Hosea 9.15, the Lord says, All their wickedness began in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Not what they did, but them. I will drive them from my land because of their evil actions. I will love them no more because all their leaders are rebels. Habakkuk 3, 12 to 13, you marched across the land in anger. You trampled the nations in your fury. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. Dear God, we're so glad the children are outside playing right now. Oh, it continues on in the rest of the Bible, too, that you thought it wasn't in. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. After the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed to death. Some of you are thinking, Fred, are you reading the same Bible I am? And my answer is yes, because you're not reading yours. Luke 12, 5. Listen to this. I tell you whom to fear. This is Jesus talking. He says, you want to know who to fear? I'll tell you who to be afraid of. He's not talking about the fear of the Lord here. He's talking about the wrath of God. There are times when we should be afraid of who God is. But I tell you whom to fear, fear God, who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Do we have a permissiveness in society because we have taught people that the love of God that is reserved for the children of God is for all people? And what I would say to you is the love of God is waiting for all people. But it does not belong to you until you receive it through Christ. He wants to love you, but people choose his hate and his wrath instead. Matthew 23, 13. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. A warning for people who have spiritual authority in any capacity. There is an accountability that we carry. 
for how what we teach affects those and what they follow. Could, could it be, could it be that our loss of appetite for the wrath of God and the fear of the Lord has been the very thing that keeps people off of the line of well-being? God forgive us. God forgive me. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through, no, I'm going to save that one. The lion and the lamb. Give me the next slide here. If my life were to ever become so out of bounds, can I just tell you, I don't want a lamb that's waiting on the other side of the line of enmity, waiting for me. I want a lion with a menacing roar and a ferocious bite that's going to give me pause and to get my attention and to remind me, Fred, you spent a whole lot of time here. What are you doing coming back here? This is the Jesus that Saul met on the road to Damascus. He was blinded. Grown men who were sent to protect him were shaking in fear. You think they met a lamb? Oh, no, they did not. They met a lion on that road, and it was that lion that changed his life. We must let Jesus be the lion to us that we desperately need him to be. Listen to me. And we need to let him be the lion to people that we love because for many of them, that's what it is that's going to change their heart. See, I believe you find the lion on the way to the line of enmity. And then as you begin to repent and you begin to realize that you're choosing wrath over love like Saul who became Paul did, then we find another side of Christ on the way back to the line of well-being and it is the lamb that walks with us, healing, gently caring. I want the lion chasing me down on the way out and I desperately need the lamb ministering to me on my way back in. The lion and the lamb. We must stop robbing Jesus of both of these identities. We must stop living in the world of false choices and let the fullness of Christ be all that he is to each of us in every way. One more slide. Let me just touch on these verses, just in case these are verses that you've had questions about. Because these are verses that I wrote down, and many others, as I was praying through and have been working on the sermon for the last several weeks and, and studying, I began to just write down the verses that, 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 that I was, how do I reconcile this teaching to these verses? And I'm just going to share with you the conclusions that I've come to. John 3.16 is still one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture, and should be until the end of time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's exclusive. It does not say for everyone. It says whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. See, John 3.16 invites us into a love relationship with God, but the only way that we can come from the other side of the line of enmity, which we are born into, into the zone of the well-being with inside of mercy and grace is if we yield to him.
all those things that Pastor Justin was talking about in the worship wrap-up, all the verses that we love to celebrate, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, those are his promises to his children and his promises to those who could be born into his family through a vow of devotion to Christ. But you have to decide whether or not you will choose his wrath or choose his love. Romans 2.4, love this verse. It is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. I believe that. I believe that. But you better believe that it is also his wrath that helps me to understand the depth of the depravity of my sin. And it's important that we understand that when we begin to dabble again in those things that once were a part of our journey and our story, we're picking back up the very things that caused the death of Christ And that's serious business to him. It will always be the goodness of God that leads people in repentance, but you better believe that the lion is also there to chase us down. This is the one that I would say I wrestled with the most. Is in Matthew 5.44, where Jesus says that we're not free to hate ever. In fact, he says, you have to love your enemy. And that verse has just stood in stark contrast to everything that I've been studying. Because if you've been paying attention, and I hope that you have, it says that God hates his enemies. That there is a love that they do not share because they are not part of his family. And is that incongruous with the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and so much of the rest of the New Testament? And as I've meditated and prayed through this verse, what I felt like the Holy Spirit whispered to my heart is that, Fred, there are things that you will never be free to do because you're human that we are free to do because we are divine. And what I believe that God wants us to understand is that we are never free to hate, ever. Because God can never trust us with that emotion because we are flawed. Even in our salvation, even in our spiritual maturity, that you and I are not free to hate our enemy. We are only free to love because we cannot be trusted with that emotion. But God is perfect and he is divine. And it's why for you and I, when we get to the end of time, there are only two places that we can go, perdition or paradise, hell or heaven, and God in his perfectness and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the only ones that have earned the right to decide who goes where because he is perfect in his judgment and we are forever imperfect in ours. And so he says to you and me, oh, you just keep on loving because you're having a hard time doing that. And let's leave the hating to the only one who's earned the right to do it, the only one who's perfect, and the only one who is sovereign, and that is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've noticed yet tonight or not, but through this graph, I hope what you realize is that you are not just one white arrow bouncing around the blue line of well-being. There's hundreds and thousands of lines that represent who we are. And part of this journey of spiritual maturity is trying to get the lines that are like this 
to get more like the lines that are like this. Because for you, with your giving, you might be darn straight. For you, it might be your prayer life. You're just on the straight and narrow. But your attitudes towards people that you don't get along with might look like this. And part of this journey in life is the Holy Spirit, the fear of the Lord, and if necessary, the wrath of God, trying to gather all these lines that make up who we are and get them inside the mercy lines into the lane that is close to the line of my well-being. Stand with me. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged, and we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. Father, I pray that we would all leave here tonight with a soberness, a spiritual sobriety of sorts. Forgive me, Lord, for taking for granted the suffering of your Son and my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, for being too lighthearted about the do's and the don'ts and my own wandering lines that sent your Son to the cross. Wherever my heart has become desensitized to the fear of the Lord, wherever my ear has become deaf to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as David said, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Create in them a clean heart and renew in them a right spirit. For those that are at home watching now, create in them a clean heart and renew in them a right spirit. For all of our friends on Facebook, create in them a clean heart and renew in them a right spirit for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are throughout the world right now and are so divided and are vilifying one another, create in them a clean heart and renew in them a right spirit. For the black church and the brown church and the white church and everything in between, we say create in us a clean heart and renew in us a right spirit. Because we want the history that we're making to be the story that you are writing. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.